Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. everyone. This is the June 5th, 2015 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. This is where we discuss news, politics, law, like tonight, and sometimes culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. In fact, if you really look into it and see, it's the only philosophy that upholds the right to the pursuit of happiness. I'm Amy Peikoff, your host here. And uh, for those of you who have not tuned in before, welcome, welcome. But I do see a lot of familiar faces, so to speak, here in the chat room. I see Rob and Trevor and Pig Fan, Freedom Breeze, John, etc. Welcome, 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 everyone. And tonight we are going to focus mostly on the USA Freedom Act. I'm asking the question, is the USA Freedom Act pro-freedom since the act did pass this week and it was signed into law by our dear president we should take a look at that so we're going to do that but we have some other stories as well and in fact at the beginning here in the top of the hour I'm expecting a phone call from uh, John. John was an attendee at the Arizona rally last week uh, last Friday while this show was taking place actually they were having this pro free speech rally in Arizona as you might recall and I'm expecting uh, a caller to uh, call in a listener to this show to call in and uh, talk to us so I hope that that is going to take place but while we were waiting for him we can go ahead and dive in a bit you are welcome to get in on the conversation the phone number at which you can call is 760 760- 888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. And if you do want to chime in on any of the articles, et cetera, that I've got posted over at don'tletitgo.com, just make sure when you're here on Blog Talk Radio to press the one button. And that should allow you to indicate to me, there's some little icon that I see here in my studio that'll let me know that you would like to talk. So do that. You can also chime in here 
in the Blog Talk Radio chat room. So again, go over to my blog, don'tletitgo.com, and you can see my little cheat sheet, my program notes of all the articles and things that I would like to discuss with you today. Um, first up on the agenda, as I said, while we're waiting for our, our guest here, is to talk about the Freedom Act. And what I've got for you is I've got a nice little piece written by Julian Sanchez of the Cato Institute. This particular piece was published over at um, Just Security. Just Security is a, a blog that discusses all sorts of foreign policy, security issues, et cetera. And the headline on this is called, the, it says, The Symbolic Sunset and What's Next for the USA Freedom Act. This was written before the USA Freedom Act was passed. And Sanchez was, you know, basically predicting it was going to be passed and was speculating as to whether any amendments were going to be added to the Senate version. Uh, it turned out that no, uh, McConnell was not able to get any of the amendments passed in there. But uh, and then it went ahead and just went and got signed by Obama. Uh, question is, do you think that this is something that is going to promote freedom? It's called the USA Freedom Act. Does it actually promote freedom? One clear indicator that you would think it's probably not in favor of freedom is that our president, Barack Obama, is in favor of it. Now, it could be that the only reason that Barack Obama was in favor of it was because it's the only thing he was going to be able to get out of this Congress, that he really was going to have to discontinue the bulk metadata collection program that he had promised to do so. Of course, you know, remember he promised he was going to get rid of it, and it turns out that we only get rid of the bulk metadata collection program as it existed under the Patriot Act. We only get that when that provision of the Patriot Act actually sunsets. Now, mind you, it was going to have to go away anyway because the Second Circuit recently ruled that the Patriot Act didn't even actually authorize what was going on, this bulk metadata collection program. So it's not like Obama really wanted to get rid of it. Because if he had, he would have done so long ago. Remember he gave those speeches? He was having people study it and he was going to get rid of it and et cetera. It only finally happened once the Patriot Act, those provisions of the Patriot Act expired. Um, he, you know, Obama before this passed over uh, on May 30th, he gave his weekly address and he was urging the passage of the USA Freedom Act. And he was talking about how, you know, certain provisions of the Patriot Act were going to expire. And he, and he warns, you know, that some important tools that we use against terrorists are going to expire at midnight. Um, and then he starts talking about not the bulk metadata collection, but he talks about some other tools that existed uh, along with 215, which was um, the ability to use a court order to get business records, um, actually, you know what, I think what he was doing in, in that, he was trying to talk about the bulk metadata collection program, but talk about it sort of obliquely, because um, really that's what they did. They used a court order to obtain, quote, certain business records. It's not certain business records. It's the entire cache of business records of particular telecommunications companies. But no, he didn't mention that. But then he says uh, other tools that he describes in more particularity are good tools, for example, he says, 
Our law enforcement professionals can seek a roving wiretap to keep up with terrorists when they switch cell phones. That's a good tool. He says, we can seek a wiretap on so-called lone wolves, suspected terrorists who may not be directly tied to a terrorist group. Now, you know, every day today, all of these guys, they're all lone wolves. You know, have you noticed in the, you know, in the last couple of weeks, the FBI has been either following or rounded up, or in the case of Boston, they actually shot one of these so-called lone wolves. And there was this really funny line from Jihad Watch. I was just laughing the other day because he was talking about these lone wolves were all misunderstanding Islam together. And how could this be happening? And it was it was pretty funny, but maybe I have a warped sense of humor. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, this idea that you can go ahead and have a wiretap on them, even if they're not directly tied to a terrorist group, even if they're only, quote, inspired by ISIS. This is a good tool. And he says, well, these tools are not controversial. Now, notice, though, it's only the two good tools that actually have some sort of, you know, reasonable level of cause, some sort of particularized suspicion. Those are the tools that he describes in his weekly address with particularity. The one that indicates bulk metadata collection is described in this really vague language that I didn't even catch the first time around. So he's a very tricky guy. Um, when he talks about the USA Freedom Act later in this address, he is doing blatant, blatant appeals to authority. He says the USA Freedom Act reflects ideas from privacy advocates. What the hell does reflect mean? Is it a mirror? Is the USA Freedom Act a mirror? What does it mean to reflect? Is it like you got it backwards? They wanted a certain thing and you gave them something backwards, you know, because mirror reflections are backwards. I don't know what he means by reflects. Um, then he talks about how, oh, the USA Freedom Act passed the House of Representatives with overwhelming bipartisan support. If anything has overwhelming bipartisan support, you know, it must be good. Um, I mean, you know, earlier when he talks about certain tools being not controversial, well, it means what? Not too many people disagree about it, so therefore it must be good. Another blatant appeal to authority. Um, you know, and then he warns, he gives you kind of this argumentum ad baculum if you learn from your logic class, basically an appeal to force. He says, terrorists like Al-Qaeda and ISIL aren't suddenly going to stop plotting against us at midnight tomorrow. It's, a, it's just a threat, you know. This was the same sort of warnings, and we talked a little bit about this last week, the same sort of warnings that Obama would put out there as you were reaching the deadline to raise the debt ceiling or, you know, pass a spending bill so that the, quote, government can operate. But, yeah, so if you if you listen to Obama talk about this act, it doesn't sound like a very good thing. And so you wonder what in the world is in this. And let me see. Oh, I see Jonathan is, uh, excuse me, John is over here in the chat room. And I want to go ahead and see if I can grab him. Um, sorry, while well, I was rambling on about Obama. So you're going to have to actually stay tuned to hear my analysis of, of USA Freedom Act because we're going to go ahead and take this call from John here. Let me grab it. Okay, now I got it. Hi, is this John? This is John. So welcome to the show, John, and thank you for arranging to call in and talk to us about this free speech rally last week. So you attended in Arizona, and I was going to ask you, how did you hear about it? On Facebook. Uh, just on Facebook, across, okay. Yeah, it just popped up on my feed, 
And I uh, saw that, and I go, oh, what's this about? So that caught my interest. Um, also, I'm familiar with Bosch. You know, I know his work. And um, yeah, for the listeners, I guess they might not get the speed. There was, of course, the shooting in Garland. Um, and to give you my backstory, I was actually sitting at home with my wife, and we saw the news. And we thought, wow, what is happening in Garland? It was really quite shocking for us. We thought, right. well, if that happened in Phoenix, uh, we would have been there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Potentially, we could have been killed. Fortunately, that, that didn't happen. So I was definitely uh, you know, thinking about uh, Bosch and everybody else involved in that movement. And then I saw on Facebook that there was an event here in Phoenix. And so then you figured, well, you really do have to go to this. Now, what, you know, in particular, because some people might say, you know, you go in front of a mosque and just have a kind of a, you know, a demonstration right there with, you know, signs and Muhammad cartoons and stuff. What attracted you to, why that particular mosque? Okay. Well, that particular mosque has a history. Um, I did some of my own research. So there were two um, people that worshipped at that mosque um, were convicted in federal court on uh, jihad activity. And of course, um, as you know, both of the Garland shooters uh, prayed at that mosque, attended that mosque for a very long time, uh, one of them over 10 years. And they packed up their stuff, left their apartment next to the mosque and headed straight over to Garland. So. Here I am sitting in Phoenix, 30 minutes away from the, the terrorist mosque. So that, to me, was like a big deal. It certainly wasn't picked out of the blue. And I can give you some of the details of what happened because the media really wasn't honest about what occurred at the protest. And, and certainly, many, many times I saw they didn't even explain why we were there, what the significance of the mosque was. Right. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times it's just like, oh, you know, a whole bunch of... Uh, kind of loose cannon guys just went over to whatever the local mosque was for no particular reason. They must be a bunch of bigots, right? I mean, this is the kind of impression that you would get from the news media. But what was, so the reasoning behind this, you know, I, and, and you're not the John who organized it. I want to be careful to, you know, let everybody know it's a different John. Um, But the, the John who organized it, he made some comments about cartoons that weren't necessarily that complimentary. Like he, he isn't really into the whole cartoon thing. Did you guys end up having a cartoon contest associated with this no. or not? No, we, that didn't happen. There wasn't a cartoon contest at the event. And I can, I can explain why I think that happened. Um, the organizer, to be quite frank, he was like everybody else, just a regular person. Really, what came down to it. He's not an activist. He's not a trained philosopher. What I can tell, I don't know him personally, but mm-hmm. I think he just was, um, he had had enough. He realized something was really wrong and something had to be done. And he had uh, the courage to do something. And he created this event. And it totally shocked him as to what would happen. And he didn't know how to answer questions from the media. Uh, I saw that he wasn't handling himself very well when he was interviewed. Um, I thought, wow, this something has to be done to bring the intellectual uh, meat to the to the party, so to speak. We had to bring in some intellectual co- uh, component, and not just everyone to show up and make a bunch of noise, right? Right. So I saw on the news the the eon from this mosque. He stated to the media, he says, "Look, we're not going to engage the protest protesters because they are not engaging us intellectually. 
I took that as a challenge. I said, okay, I will do that. And that's why I showed up. Excellent. Excellent. Now, you showed up to engage, you know, everybody intellectually, but I remember that the organizer, John, had said, well, make sure that in addition to coming to exercise your First Amendment rights, that you also be prepared, if necessary, to exercise your Second Amendment rights in order to protect yourself. Because if you recall, ISIS was putting out some threats, basically saying nobody should go to this because we're going to drink your blood. I think I swear reading something like that. So did you go there prepared to also defend yourself physically if necessary? Yes, I did. Uh, I carried my sidearm in a holster. I do have a lot of experience handling firearms. Now, when I prepared myself, I, I went there intellectually, but I had to protect myself physically because it really has reached that point. Um, this is the shooter's mosque. This is a serious issue. And people right. are just showing up and they're providing their own security. You know, nobody uh, had private security. There was no farthing and no contact with the police other than the police found out about it. So right. it was just individually showing up. And you, you had to really consider it could be dangerous. We didn't know what to expect. Um, my preparation the night before was to put on a suit. Right. Mm -hmm. My goal was to talk to them. I wanted to debate them. I wanted to persuade them. I wanted to get an intellectual argument. You and I probably know a lot of these arguments. Uh, and that, that's what I did. And it, it actually worked quite well. So so who, to whom did you speak? And, and I mean, was it because I, as far as what I saw in the media on the other side, you know, they had that kind of police barrier between you. But on the other side, you saw just liberals who were there to be sympathetic with the Muslims. Mm -hmm. And then you also saw, of course, the Muslims. Right. Right. So, it, yeah, it helps to get an idea of what it was like. Um, like give me some idea who showed up, right? So they called it a biker event, but the fact of the matter was they weren't the largest group, and the type of bikers that showed up were really just kind of like Harley guys. It wasn't like dudes with colors and vests and things like that. There were a couple of those guys, like one or two. Um, okay. So on the, on the, on the pro-free speech side, because the, the media portrayed it so incredibly dishonestly, I actually have to kind of tell a story so you know what happened. So... On the pro-free speech side, it was mostly just regular people that showed up. Young, old, there were professors from universities there. There were all kinds of people there, a huge, diverse crowd. And they just showed up one at a time by themselves. Right? So you had the okay. bikers, Harley guys. Uh, you had a couple of dudes that were unsavory because it's just a you know, wide-open event. You had the one white tower guy there, one. Right? The media showed him constantly. Of course, of course. Yeah, of course. And they had one guy with a bullhorn who's a Christian evangelical, and he's like infamous here in Phoenix. And then you have a couple of these kind of militia types that come fully decked out in like uh, combat gear. They're in Afghanistan. There's like five hmm. or six of them. Oh, yeah. I mean, to give you some idea that, you know, those guys are not uncommon sites in Arizona when there's a protest of some kind. They're actually well known. Right. There's like a few activists. And most of them are really, they're benign. They're really harmless. No big deal. And um, then it was basically a whole mix of different people. And they just kind of went there and were kind of like, you know, trying to, I guess, advocate in some way the best they knew how. And then we'll come to that a little more later. On the other side, on the pro-Islam side, was quite interesting. On that side, you had much more collective. There was individual people showing up. 
what you had was organized groups showing up. So case in point, there was a large, what they call a human shield. And they were all brought in from one church here in Arizona called uh, Orangeburg Church. They mm. provided the human shield. And with about 25, 30 people, just a line of them, uh, in front of the, I guess you could say the Muslims or other uh, counter-protests. So they provide the human shield. Be- because, because you guys, of course, meant to come there and do them physical harm, you know, right? You, you know, that's kind of what they portray, right? It's a human shield against what? You know? Yeah. Um, but, but the fact is, we weren't there to cause trouble, and no, no trouble happened. In fact, that's why the media dropped the story, because it was so civilized. I mean, the, the truth is, at least 250 people showed up. Everyone on the pro-freedom side or pro-free speech side, everybody was armed. Some guys with like machine guns, body armor, wow. with plates. I mean, everyone was armed. Everyone had a gun. I, I had my own firearm. And I mean, this is, this is what they were led to believe was necessary post-Garland in order just to make a simple statement in favor of free speech out in front yeah. of a mosque. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's actually quite scary on a personal level. Uh, my own family was concerned that I was going there. They were really afraid. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people felt the same way. But you know what? They were brave enough, brave enough to show up. And I thought that was significant. Right. Um, so on the other side was the human shield. They were from one particular church, um, and they actually have connections to uh, another organization that's an anti-Israel organization. They're called the Evangelicals for Middle East Understanding. So they were organized by an anti-Israel group, um, and they showed up. So it's kind of funny. I mean, this stuff is information really easy to find on the Internet. You Google the people's names, and they'll come up. And I think a journalist would have an interesting time uncovering this kind of stuff. So we have an anti-Israel group defending the mosque, providing the human shield. So that's a big chunk of that side. And then you have um, another group called Women in Black. They had their signs up, and they are a... You know, they're tied to Code Pink, and their organizers are, went, to, you know, went to Iran to a Holocaust denier event. So women mm-hmm. black are all tied into an anti-Israel group. And then you had a bunch of, you know, Muslims there. And uh, then a bunch of uh, university students are, like, progressively trained. They've shown yes. up, effectively indoctrinated. They've shown up. I challenged them all. All of them. Wow. And the... In my view, and they asked me, what's my view? I said, well, I'm for man's rights. I, I won't give the argument here because this audience probably know them already. Right. But um, one, of the, one of the things I stressed to them was, you know, the, the freedom of speech is not simply drawing cards from them. Because in essence, if you're not free to speak, you're also not free to think. So mm-hmm. I tried to tie that down for them, you know, maybe a, little, a different idea for them. And I told myself, okay, here's what's going on. You know, the family fathers had it right. The freedom of speech is not just me talking to my neighbor. It's me sharing my ideas. Most importantly, you know, speech isn't just talk. It's also writing. So in order to really formulate your ideas, to make them integrated and build large abstractions philosophically, you have to write, right? So ultimately, you can't speak. You can't write. You can't create your ideas. You can't formulate your system to guide your life, you cannot think, right? If you're, if you're oh, yeah, no, I mean, if, if, you, can, if yeah. you can't do the outward expression of the thought, 
then eventually the thought is going to stop as well. <laughs> you know, um, you've, you've got you've got to be able to express it. Yes, and 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 this so, is how, of course, we survive. This is how we communicate life-saving ideas to one another is is via speech. So you know, the whole of human survival depends on being able to communicate ideas, exp- express ideas, especially if we're going to live in society with each other. I mean, you know, this is all the premise that we are going to live in society with each other. And if you're going to live in a free society where people's individual rights are uh, respected, what's the way that you deal with each other? You deal with each other by exchanging knowledge and trading values. And the only way to do that freely is to be able to, you know, speak your mind freely. So long as you are not infringing the rights of others, you know, libel, slander, inciting violence directly, things like that, then, you know, you're allowed to say what you want and offend and everything else. And this is part of what exchanging ideas in a free society means. So if we lose this freedom, we lose the foundation of a society that respects rights. And this is something I actually urge everybody to look at Pat Condell's video, which I added at the very end of the program notes for today's show. He just released a video talking about basically the death of freedom of speech in the United States. It is a majorly serious issue. And if you think, oh, you know, I don't necessarily want to go defend freedom of speech at a cartoon contest or out in front of a mosque like John did. Uh, you know, you're basically like the people in, you know, that said, oh, well, first the totalitarians came for so-and-so, but I'm not part of their group, so what did I care? And then they came for these other people, and I'm not part of their group, so what did I care? And then, oh, suddenly they came for me, big surprise, and it's too late. And, that you know, he's talking about America being the last bastion of freedom of speech, and we're submitting, we're, we're giving up our, our, our freedom of speech. And it sounds like you were one of the few, maybe, maybe the only rational voice grounded in rights that, you know, there, of course, not everybody else was doing it based on their American sense of life, which in the end is an implicit holding of this philosophy that we're talking about, John, but it's good that you were able to be there and express it explicitly. What did you feel like you made progress with the people with whom you spoke? Yeah. In fact, a lot of people that had shown up on the other side, didn't know why we were there. They didn't know about the shooting. They didn't know that the mosque had a history. Um, wow. They, they thought we were, quote, haters. You know, they were yelled at you're haters. You're just they're a bunch of bigots. Yeah. yeah. What, what do I hate? I mean, what? What am I hating? Please tell me. I said, give me your ideas. Why are you here? Why is this so important? You came here today. Tell me. I mean, why is it good? What motivated you? And I wanted to get the intellectual discussion going. And... Mm-hmm. I, when I told people why, the, I told people the history of the mosque, what had happened in Garland, and I showed them uh, Bosch's cartoon, their eyes. Which is so face. innocuous, you know. Yeah. You, think, you think by the fact that the media is refusing to show this cartoon that it must be the most horrendous, most offensive, most horrible thing in the world. If anybody listening by chance has not seen this cartoon, if you go to PamelaGeller.com, it's probably the place that you'll be able to find it and see it the most easily. It is, of course, at Bosch Faustin's website as well. It's of Boston.blogspot.com. But yeah, PamelaGeller.com, she's got it displayed in various places on her site. And you can see how innocuous this thing is. This cartoon that one, you know, uh, 
media pundit described as tantamount to the N-word, indistinguishable from using the N-word. That's how offensive this cartoon, and it's really not. It really makes that political point that it's necessary to stand for freedom of speech, stand up against those who would enforce Sharia law against us and tell us that we're not able to draw or say or whatever, you know, certain things. So, so, so you actually showed the cartoon and people had not seen it and they were surprised? Yes, I had the cartoon and I held it up the entire time. And I actually had a few extra copies and I handed them out. I would say to people, this is the cartoon. This is what it's all about. It's just this. And they looked at it and they're like, that's the cartoon? I'm like, yes, this is the cartoon. They're like, oh. And they look at it and they go, oh, it's pretty smart. <laughs> they didn't know. Even on the pro freedom of speech side, they didn't see, know the cartoon either. So this is how uh, uninformed a lot of people are. They see the news. So people that showed up were motivated, like, hey, something's wrong. But they didn't know the facts. Right. So uh, if I could take a takeaway on, on this protest, it was like a concentration of every single philosophical view, political view, concentrated in concrete form, and it all showed up. So you had everything you possibly imagine. And so many people just didn't know. And I would say when I challenged the other side intellectually, their eyes, they got worried. You could see, they're like, oh, uh, I see what he's saying. Uh, oh, I'm worried about my position now. <laughs> so they're a little concerned. Wow. Yes, and other people on my side were coming up and they were shaking my hand. They're like, thank you so much for coming. I'm not, I'm not even bragging. I'm trying to get the facts. Like, thank you for coming. I really appreciate what you're doing here. I was interviewed, interviewed by at least five or, five or so media people. My interviews never got on TV. They never got on the media. Gee, I wonder why, because you seem so reasonable. It's the same reason that the cartoon itself doesn't show up in the media. Right. It's because it is so reasonable. And, you know, um, there's there's an argument that's been going around now in the last several days, you know, by continually talking about this cartoon and not showing it, the media is basically stealing a value, a tremendous value from the artist, uh, Bosch Faustin, which is this. They're getting the news value about continually talking about this cartoon. And then at the same time, by not showing it, they are pretending, basically they're libeling the cartoon. They're basically describing or, you know, making it seem as if it is really offensive, very racist, et cetera, et cetera. Not that it's making an important political point. And by libeling the cartoon in this way, by making it seem so offensive, they are putting him at more risk. I mean, how many of these would-be lone wolves maybe haven't even seen the cartoon themselves, right? Now, of course, those guys are the crazies who, you know, if you had the stick figure and you drew it and you said, oh, that's Muhammad, they'd go after you, you know, because you're horrible, uh, according to them. But the point is, is that how many people who think they're sympathetic to the, you know, so-called jihadist side and everything, um, that they haven't even seen the cartoon. This cartoon is reasonable. It makes a political point. It's not lewd. It's not offensive. And the news media, by treating the whole thing the way that they are, they are actually libeling that cartoon. I wonder if that'd be the basis for a lawsuit. I'm having, you know, sometimes I have like ideas for cartoons themselves. Now I'm having the idea for a, a basis of a lawsuit. This is a kind of a new direction for this show to go. But what do you think? Do you think I have a good case, John? I would go for it. I think it's a great idea. I, mean, I don't know if it's going to be too much traction, 
but it certainly would draw light to the issue and maybe uh, bring some, you know, humiliate some people that are so cowardly. You know, right. that's what it comes down to. I mean, they they could have really presented the protest much better if the media was honest. Um, but it's just regular people showed up. You know, they're not flashy. They're not a bunch of intellectuals. I really think if uh, they had the right ideas, I'm telling you, they were hungry for ideas. People are coming up and they're really interested in ideas. People that showed up had courage to do something was wrong. And when they were given some ideas, they were happy to receive them. And the opposite side was scared of ideas. They were instructed not to talk to me or anyone. They were just dead silent, like a human shield, dead hand silent. But I wouldn't stop. You know, I'd say, hey, I'm, use your reason, use your reason. And I'd give them some arguments. Eventually, wow. they would start talking to me. They would start talking to me, and they would start having a dialogue from across this kind of barrier of fleet. Right? Sure. And, and then it would, you had to yell a lot because it was very noisy. It's 100 degrees outside. It's really noisy. Everyone's around. <sighs> people are yelling. It's, it's, it's a wild thing. But people from the other side surprised me. They walked over. They came to me and said, hey, I just want to talk to you some more. That's excellent. So about, about how many people do you think that you communicated with approximately from each side? Oh, um, all of them. All of them. So my voice was blown out at the end of the night. Oh, wow. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I couldn't do nothing, right? It was definitely motivated. Right. It had to be done. And uh, this was the, the sad, this had to happen. So, and I, I, I even lectured my own side because I think it wasn't very well organized. So people didn't think they had to bring cartoons or draw them, you know, bring supplies to draw them. They just showed up, you know, and they were ready to go. Mm. Right. So it wasn't a contest. And I started talking to my own side. I said, hey, you know, this is a cartoon. And they're like, oh, that's it. I'm like, hold on. These people don't even know it's a cartoon. So I just I held it out in front of me, and I pushed right through the entire crowd on my side. And I said, this is a cartoon, everyone. This is it. <laughs> this is a winning cartoon. This yeah, you know, it's, it's very un unfortunate that the organizer basically derided the idea of cartoons as stupid. Um, he did. He did go on to say that in today's context, it is there is very important to do these cartoons simply because we're told that we're not supposed to be doing the cartoons. So this is the form of expression that must be used in order to counter the particular threat. You know, of course, today it's Muhammad cartoons, and then tomorrow it's going to be whatever other offensive thing that you're doing or saying or whatever. There was actually an article this week that said that ISIS has banned. Pigeon breeding, pigeon breeding as offensive. Now, I think the real reason is because pigeons carry messages, you know, and you can't actually let people communicate with each other in a totalitarian dictatorship like ISIS. But the stated reason is that it is offensive to actually see the genitalia of pigeons as they fly overhead. How ridiculous is that? Right. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, 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 so the, so the idea is, you know, they, they, the cartoons needed to be more of a central piece. So it's really good that you brought the cartoons there. People were taking photographs of the cartoon once they realized that's what it was. They came up with their camera. They stuck it up. They said, oh, can I take a picture of that? I really want that. I'm like, sure, please take a picture. I said, the artist is Bosch Watson. Look him up. I don't share the cartoon, please. Uh, people were very interested in it. They're like, wow, that's, that's a really interesting cartoon. I really like that. Um, people were shocked. Wow. Now, to give you an idea, though, I guess um, what the other side is like, 
I think we already know, but it's interesting to see it in a concrete form. A man came up to me. He was obviously uh, on the pro-Islam side. He like a early 30s kind of uh, hipster-looking kind of guy with a beard. And I mm-hmm. pulled a cartoon out in front of me. And he comes up and he says, oh, can I take a picture of your cartoon? And, you know, a little dialogue starts up. And um, Larry does his camera. He's taking a photograph. And at that moment, I tell him, I said, yes, this is the winning cartoon in Garland. And this is what two men went to kill someone over. And now he realized what he's looking at. He's holding mm. his camera in the right hand. And his left hand, he throws in front of his own camera to stop the picture. He says, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. And I was stunned to see this man actually compromise and censor his own mind. He was actually trying to stop the picture of the Muhammad cartoon from striking his eyes and therefore striking his mind. Keep in mind, there's no Muslims around us to worry about. We're in the, the pro-freedom side, we're all armed. But he's so scared of what's going to enter into his brain, he throws up his hand to block his own camera. Wow. I said, I said sir, you just compromised your own thinking, your own mind. And he looked at me, and he said, I don't want to, how I, I don't want to offend people with a little colorful word in the middle there. And he was mad at me. So this is a good example. Everything was concretized as he possibly imagined. That one man was like the perfect progressive indoctrinated man. And he got right. it. He got it. It's his mind that had to be shut off. He actually got it in some implicit level. I was just like, yeah. wow. And so he had to shut off his he had to shut off his perception too because you know when that perceptual material comes in, even though he wants to have his mind not evaluate it in any way, there is going to be some evaluation that takes place based on some of his premises, ones maybe that he's trying to fight. Wow. So one more tidbit about the, the the armed aspect is that who was really the threat? And I'm telling you, the Phoenix Police did a fantastic job. They were very professional, very, very uh, controlled. They knew exactly what they were doing to establish that. They, they cordoned off the whole neighborhood. You couldn't get in. Everything was closed off from like a quarter mile around. You had to walk. Okay. Two helicopters were flying overhead. There were drones flying around. It was, hmm. it was a real thing. So to give you an idea of who, who was the real threat at the event. Okay. So when I left, because I was the, really the only one of two people that had the Muhammad cartoon, and I held it up predominantly and was very active. I showed all the Muslims. They were telling me to put it down. I wouldn't right. put it down. So I made myself a bit of a target. In a sense. So I thought, okay, it's very dark. It's very secluded to my car. It's going to be difficult to get out of here. I'm a little concerned. It's at about 8.30 at night, 9 o'clock at night. So I asked the police officer, I said, could you please escort me to my car? He looks at me and he says, are you armed? I'm like, keep in mind, they don't even check anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> I said, I said, yes, I am. He's like, okay, I cannot give you a personal escort. We can't, we're not allowed to do that. And I explained to him, I said, I'm carrying this cartoon. This is what the cartoon is about. Here's what it's from. That triggered the attack, supposedly. And can you give me some security? This is my car. Because I'm concerned. And they have people uh, doing lookout outside. Can't trust them. So he said, you can't give me a personal secu- escort. Okay, no problem. So I started walking to my car. And one of the guys with me to kind of watch over me a bit, come my back. I look up, and both police helicopters are orbiting me <laughs> all the way to my car. <laughs> so the police Beautiful. knew. They knew what was going on. 
both right. of us were armed and were exiting the neighborhood. And they allocated the resources to the two men that had the Muhammad cartoon and went to the parking lot to leave. This is about a one and a half, two block walk. They nice. knew where the threat was. They knew. Right. And at the end of the night, it was reported to me when it was all over, when the, when the pro-Islam side left, the cops closed the event and left all the people there with guns unattended. So it got told me what was going on. So uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I do appreciate you having me on the air to tell you. I, I appreciate you. I appreciate you calling in very much. And I mostly appreciate you going there and adding the element that you did to the event and making it more meaningful, at least for the people who were there, although you wouldn't know that from the media coverage, it sounds like. Yes, and I wish they, you know, somehow there was an outlet. you got to have your own media outlet if you want people to know, and that's why you have your show, and I really I think it's a great thing. Um, I would encourage people to go to these events. I would, I would, you got to do it. And my, my standard is now you have to be uh, at least as brave, brave as a cartoonist. You know, <laughs> it's like that was my day. I'm like, okay, i got to be as brave as a cartoonist. You know, that, if I can do that, I'll be a good person. So I'm, I'm sort of joking. But you, know, you really have to do something, and I'll tell you, People want to it, it, was, it was an entirely different type of thing, though, right? Because, you know, Pamela Geller, she really organized that Garland event well, and she hired all this security in addition to the police, you know, were helping somewhat as well. But you guys were going there in a way that wasn't nearly as organized, and you had in advance that explicit threat from ISIS and stuff. So you did an extremely brave thing. I don't know that the people who actually went to Garland, I'm not saying that they're cowards in any way, shape, or form, but before Garland happened, nobody realized the type of bravery that's required to go to these type of events. So you were among the first to go to an event like this post-Garland, so kudos to you. In addition to, like I said, I mean, you know, and, and here's the thing, too. There you are, you're going and you're facing the fear and you're operating on an intellectual level. Now, mind you, you know, I think sometimes I think, you know, doing the intellectual work can actually help kind of take your mind off of any particular fear that you have, you know, help you kind of put it aside. So that's good. But still, it's a tremendous achievement. So I, re I thank you very much, John. Thank you, Amy. And I, I would encourage people to go. And I think it really will make a difference. You know, a few people that have an intellectual argument, there are people that will listen, especially those right. events because they're motivated, but they don't have the intellectual ammunition, so to speak. And they are hungry for it. And then the other side, they're weak. They're very weak. You have some crazies yes. over there, you can't worry about them. But there are people that can be open to some reason. They can see the errors. Maybe they won't come to your side, but they'll leave and abandon the other side. And uh, I really encourage people to do it. I think I agree. more traction can be made. I agree. I do. I do hope that there's going to be a lot more events like this and people over here in the blog talk radio chat room have been chiming in to that effect as well. So thank you again, John. And then I am going to go ahead and, and divert and talk about some of my usual privacy stuff. So hopefully you'll hang around and listen and, uh, and call in again. I appreciate it. Thank you. Good night. Take care. That is awesome. Uh, it sounds like he really made a lot of progress. Um, 
Yeah, here in the chat room, Freedom Breeze says it's crazy to realize how much people can block truth right in front of them. I mean, that literal picture of the guy putting his hand up in front of the camera so he doesn't actually see the cartoon through the camera viewfinder, so to speak. It's wonderful. Uh, selfishness here in the chat room. Saluting you, John, if you're still listening. Um, intimidation fire reason. No, I mean, if you have an argument, there are a lot of people who really just won't be able to handle themselves. They don't want to actually confront a serious argument. But yeah, um, so yeah, I have to, I maybe have to consider whether there is a, a case for defamation because I do think that there's some sort of a defamation that they've achieved by not showing this cartoon, but we can leave that for another time. What I have promised you this evening and what I want to deliver is uh, give you an idea of what is going on with the USA Freedom Act and what the essential argument is against it. Okay. And, and you can go to Julian Sanchez's article over at Just Security. I have a link to it on my blog at don'tletitgo.com. You can also look, I had sort of a technical back and forth with him on Twitter this evening. I was really grateful that he answered my question because I actually think that there's a different way to interpret the statute than he does. And I'll, I'll give you the essence of it in a minute here, but you can check that out as well. I'm on Twitter at Amy Peakoff. But so again, this week we had some small portion of the Patriot Act that has sunsetted and that included the section 215 that sort of purported to authorize the bulk metadata collection. Of course, the second circuit recently said that no, it did not authorize the bulk metadata collection. But now what we have is we have the USA Freedom Act, which has enacted into law what is essentially similar to the bulk metadata collection program, except for the initial collection, the default collection uh, being done only by the telecommunications companies. So the way that it is now under the USA Freedom Act is that metadata, which of course is collected by these telecommunications companies anyway as part of providing you with phone service because they have to bill you, right, for the time that you use the phone. And sometimes it's long distance based on what number that you dial and are there ro roaming charges or not. I mean, I'm not sure how many people's calling plans even have that many variations anymore. A lot of people just have, you know, a certain number of minutes and you basically call anywhere in the country. But there, you know, some of this data, some of this metadata is at least relevant to the service that the company provides you and what they bill you for. Um, so this data collected by the company can be retrieved by the government under certain conditions. That's what the USA Freedom Act says, is that the government can obtain the information that is collected and retained by these phone companies under certain conditions. One question in my mind is whether there is actually a requirement in the legislation for the phone companies to retain it for a certain period of time. Because as I understood, the Section 215 bulk data collection program, the company, excuse me, the company, the government retained the information for up to about five years. And as I understand it, they're talking about these telecommunication companies retaining metadata for only 18 months. And there was even some concern that once the companies are no longer 
required to retain it for a certain period of time, that maybe they wouldn't retain the information for the full 18 months. And in fact, one of the amendments that McConnell was trying to get through, but he failed, was that the telecommunication company would have to inform the government if it had decided not to retain metadata for the full 18 months. Now, they didn't want to outright require the companies to retain it that long, but they wanted to put a little kind of stumbling block in their path if they decided maybe they weren't going to retain it that long. Um, You know, I could see that there would be reasons to retain at least certain metadata by the companies for a year, maybe a bit longer. Maybe you want to allow the customer to browse their prior phone records, you know, say online and things like that, uh, check out their usage, their billing and all this kind of stuff for certain periods of time. I could see a year at least, maybe even 18 months as having a reasonable business purpose. But as someone who believes in rights, that I believe that the companies should decide on what terms they're going to do business, as long as they are not violating anybody's rights, they should be able to decide for how long they think they need to keep this metadata as a part of normal, you know, normally doing business. Uh, it seems that every, all the companies are, I guess, happy, you know, retaining it for the 18 months. But what's going to happen if one of the companies says, hey, you know, after your bill is paid, we're going to dump your metadata. And then everybody pays their bills right away and then their metadata gets dumped. I mean, you know, what is to stop the companies from doing this? But anyway, that's one provision they wanted to add. Um, Another provision that they wanted to add to it was uh, an amendment. This is, this is McConnell, you know, your friend McConnell, the Republicans that we're so glad that we, uh, you know, voted in again, (sighs) McConnell put forth for a vote. It failed. Thankfully, he put forth an amendment that would have stripped away a transparency provision that would have required, that does require, excuse me, it does require publication of significant FISA court opinions. Remember the FISA is this, you know, kind of shadowy court that everybody thinks sort of rubber stamps all of the government's requests for personal information. Uh, Now, under the USA Freedom Act, there is at least some requirement of publishing what they call significant FISA court opinions. What is significant? Who knows? But again, it's better than what we had, right? with respect to FISA. Um, but, you know, as Sanchez points out, this provision is necessary to ensure that some of these new safeguards can't be secretly, quote, reinterpreted into irrelevance. Because in fact, the, you know, one of the reasons that we're here, according to the Second Circuit, is that this FISA court secretly reinterpreted Section 215 of the Patriot Act in order to, uh, you know, permit and authorize bulk metadata collection. So that was what it was the issue. Thankfully, these amendments that McConnell tried to put forth failed. And then at least you got the clean USA Freedom Act, so to speak. Now, mind you, the USA Freedom Act has been opposed by both Rand Paul and Justin Amash. And um, what I want to do is I want to give you the essential argument as to why uh, Amash opposed it, which I'm going to do here in a second, but I do have a call I'm going to take right here for a second. Hi, who's this? Hey, Bosch. Oh, Bosch. So welcome. Did you listen to John? I did. In my interview just a little bit ago? I did. Kudos for John, huh? 
Yep. And uh, the uh, the one guy who tried to cover his mind and eyes. <laughs> That's, that's, I mean, and, that, and that's how I think uh, a TV host will react if I whip it out on them, you know, quickly from my pocket or something or, or on my T-shirt, open up my jacket. They'll probably just cover their eyes literally. Right. Right. Now, what do you uh, think of my okay. what do you think of my ideas of, of a defamation lawsuit against these people that basically I mean, they're, de- they're defaming your it, cartoon? Right. I mean, it, they, there could be something there. Who knows? But the fact is, by not showing it, they are trying to make it appear as it's too obscene to show, and therefore, yeah, getting me into more trouble than I already am. Right, because again, I mean, I guess you know, John found that when he was showing this around, right, a lot of people hadn't seen it, and they were surprised at how tame. I don't know if you remember um, Eugene Volick over at the Volick Conspiracy Blog. He wrote a couple different pieces uh, post Garland, yeah. and I, as I recall, the first one. When he talked about the cartoon, he said, well, it's a little bit tame for my taste. I prefer the Charlie Hebdo. And I was thinking, okay, you want you like vulgar cartoons? Okay, fine for you. But I'm not a big fan of vulgar cartoons myself. You know, again, as Pamela Geller has said, you know, you defend to the death the right of Charlie Hebdo to do those cartoons. But is it my personal taste necessarily? No, not, not my thing. But I think a lot of people would assume by the fact that the media has refused to show it that your cartoon is perhaps even more offensive than the Charlie yes. Hebdo cartoons. Right. And you know what? To them, to some of them, like the CNN dude, who's that guy, Chris Cuomo or whatever? Chris who Coma. keeps well, Yeah, Coma, you call him. But I mean, yeah. I, what I think is that your cartoon must be even more offensive than the Charlie Hebdo to him because yours actually makes an intellectual point that Absolutely is right. true, but that he doesn't want anybody to know about. Absolutely. You know? Because they will get some people say, wait a minute, you were hold, you were hiding this from us. This mm-hmm. is a very simple, direct way of, of pushing the free speech issue. And that's what, that's what it was about. It was about the prohibition of drum Muhammad taken dead on head on. And they don't want that out there because they, they have to paint it. Me as some wacko anti-Islam guy, anti-Muslim guy. Excuse me. I am anti-Islam. I'm not anti-Muslim per se, but that's how right. they're trying to paint us. But uh, two things I just wanted to mention, and then sure. I'll go. Uh, there's one of the stories, I don't know if you're going to discuss it, or you want me just to mention it now, about the, the redacted pages that Bush, in the 9-11 report, 28 pages were all redacted or not? You know, I, I do have this on, on the program notes, and, and really the essence of it is kudos to Rand Paul for pushing for the release of these secret pages of the 9-11 report, because this you know 9-11 report, Everybody seems to know this, although the pages have not been released yet, yeah. um, that these pages show that Saudi Arabia financed the t- attacks of 9-11. Everybody knows, yes. everybody knows that 15 of the 19 terrorists happened to be from Saudi Arabia. But what this yeah. report shows that we haven't seen, apparently, is that they financed the attacks. And so that all these years we've you know, been so-called, you know, in bed with the Saudis in terms of having beneficial relationships with them. And we should never have done that. They were, in fact, behind this horrific uh, act of war against America. Yeah. And we act as if they I, are our ally. It is inexcusable. It's, 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 just, it's, it's just, it's it's unbelievable evil. And one thing, one observation I'll make is that Rand Paul the anti-war guy, you know, who mm-hmm. always mocks the, the rights about wars, wars, war, endless wars, as if we've fought wars since 9-11. We have done mm-hmm. everything to not fight wars since 9-11. But 
But, but what I'm saying is, if he goes all the way to, to the end logic, okay, let, let's say he pushes for this, right? And it's outed that Saudi Arabia was responsible for 9-11. What will President Ron, Rand Paul do about Saudi Arabia? Right. What will I hope somebody asked him. This? I hope somebody asked him that question because the logical I doubt, I doubt consequence. Doubt, yeah. Yeah. No, because logical consequences. We with, should go to war. Yeah, he's playing with something that he, that he really shouldn't because he's not he's not prepared to take on the Saudis in a war. He's not prepared to do that. You right. know it. He's like his father. Right. So, but but he's just doing it for political reasons because he's so weak foreign policy that he needs to act tough without any consequence, without actually doing anything about it. But if right. you take this and and it is uh, it is released, it's and then it's it's found out that Saudi was indeed behind that eleven. America has to do something about it, and I don't think a president Rand Paul would. Yeah, it, I don't. I don't think he's thinking things through clearly. Just like I'm not sure that he really thought through clearly the opposition that he did to the USA Freedom Act, because I don't think that's where he should have put right. all his marbles, so to speak. And I'll talk about that in a minute. So that was that was right. one thing. You had another one. I forgot. I forgot oh no! Um, yeah. Well, while while you're thinking about it, while you're thinking about it, um, Trevor in the chat room here is saying huh? there better be some pigman news before he goes. Let me let me say something now, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. uh, there's uh, there's something brewing, um, and and regarding my work, there's a potential an investor who wants to invest in my work in, in, in some capacity, and I can't talk about the, the, the details, but uh, I'm nearing the finish line with the book. But there's a possibility of putting it off a little for a very uh, clear purpose that can be, I guess, explained at a later date. Um, and I, that's as far as I, I can go right now. That's, that's the latest news on that. Okay, okay. Okay, so I'm going to jump back into my privacy mode because this is on and the agenda. Thing, this it's, sure. It's, uh, I mean, I'm going to fight with the investor to try to get it out sooner, but it's a good reason why not to. So I will agree with that aspect of it. But if I had my way, I would release tomorrow if I could, but I can't. So that's all. All right. Cool. Okay. Thank you. And yeah, I mean, go go ahead and call in with a little question again if uh, if you've got any more to chime in on. But I'm gonna sure. I'm gonna go full I'm gonna go full privacy now. All right. <laughs> is is it like oh if you if you go full privacy then you basically bore your audience or something? Is that how it goes? Well, you shouldn't put it that way because that's like the uh, Robert Downey Jr. No. in that movie. No. Uh, you've gone full. You know, but 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 really, what I, what I'm promising is I'm tr I'm promising to explain what it is that Justin Amash has against the USA Freedom Act and to talk about whether there's anything to it. So that's what we're going right, to do. Well, I'll, I'll be listening. In. Awesome. Okay, great. Thanks for calling in, Bosch. Okay, so let's talk about what it is. So what Justin Amash's concern is, is that before the USA Freedom Act, all we had was the Patriot Act. And the Patriot Act... Of course, the FISA court reinterpreted Section 215 to pretend that it authorized bulk metadata collection, but in fact, says the Second Circuit, it didn't authorize that. And in any event, it was sunsetting, and so there wasn't really anything there that was going to authorize this bulk metadata collection. Now, those of us who don't trust Barack Obama as far as we could throw him, actually, we could throw him pretty far, so... 
as far as our little pinkies could throw him, right? Because he's a, he's a small guy. Um, but yeah, we don't trust him. So we would think even if there's no piece of legislation authorizing it, he'd have some sort of secret executive order. He'd figure out how to keep his toys, right? But at least there's nothing anymore on the books that's valid, that even purports to authorize this book, Metadata Collection. And so what Amash is saying is that now you've got the USA Freedom Act, and as far as we know, maybe it's constitutional because it hasn't been declared unconstitutional, say, by the Second Circuit, like the Patriot Act has, and suddenly you've encoded into law, you've actually put it out there, you've you know enacted this bulk metadata collection program, you've put it there. And moreover, some people argue that it's fairly ripe for abuse, that by the language of the statute, that even though it purports to say that the government has to have some sort of specific type of inquiry that they have to make in order to get the information from the phone companies, Amash argues that per the language of the statute, you could still do what amounts to bulk metadata collection, which is collecting of this data without probable cause and without particularized suspicion. In the article that I linked to, um, Julian Sanchez questions this argument. He actually thinks that the requirements in the USA Freedom Act do have some teeth. And let me just walk you through quickly the basic argument. What, um, what, what Julian thinks is that the new legislation, the USA Freedom Act, actually puts up two requirements. It used to be that there was a so-called relevance requirement. And it turned out that the FISA court interpreted away this relevance requirement to basically be meaningless, that you could say that something is relevant simply because it might be useful to have all this bulk data. Um, so basically what the FISA court has done is they would take any ambiguity in the Section 215 language and reinterpret, you know, relevance to mean you can have bulk metadata collection because, hey, if you have everything, then you can find what you need, which is, of course, horrible and lame. So what uh, Julian thinks is that the new piece of legislation does two things. First of all, it puts some teeth into the word relevance so that relevance cannot just be that, well, you could, if you had all this bulk metadata, find what you need. That's not going to be enough to meet the relevance requirement. But then he says, in addition to the teeth that relevance is being given, then there's also a requirement of what they call a specific selection term. So that basically there has to be some level of cause under relevance and some level of particularized suspicion in terms of a specific selection term. Now, I'm not going to go too much into the ins and outs, but if you go back through and you read Sanchez's article and you read the exchange that I had with him on Twitter, what I argue is that it's possible to interpret the language of the act to say that the relevance that they're referring to is 
the same relevance that they had in section 215, namely something meaningless, and that in terms of the specific selection terms, and that those were not supposed to be so broad that you would end up with bulk metadata collection, that those also could end up being something that yielded basically bulk metadata without real particularized suspicion. Yeah, maybe you have to have two different terms. It might have to be all the Verizon in a certain zip code in New York plus something else. But nonetheless, if you have, you know, all the Verizon, that has zero, right? Zero in terms of particularized suspicion. All the people in this one certain area of New York, well, maybe that's also nothing in terms of particularized suspicion. And then you add like one more term that also doesn't really have anything about particularized suspicion. It just gives you a group of people that don't have any, you know, kind of conduct related things to the term that refers to them, right? If you have something that isn't really relevance, even though relevance sounds like something in terms of cause, you know, relevance is meaningless. So if you have the meaningless version of relevance, and then you add, quote, specific selection terms on top of that, but none of those really provide true particularized suspicion, then zero plus zero equals zero, and you might still end up with bulk metadata. That's, to me, a possible interpretation of this language. And this is the sort of thing that Justin Amash is afraid of, that in effect, it sounds like you're putting requirements on being able to get this data from the phone companies. But what you've done in the USA Freedom Act is in addition to renewing the good stuff that I talked about earlier, right? The ability to wiretap the lone wolves and the ability to track the terrorists if they ditch their cell phone and get a new one. Those are fine. These are all parts of particular ongoing investigations. But what you might also get now, what you probably have gotten is an encoding, an enactment, an actual putting in real legitimate legislation of a bulk metadata collection program where none actually existed before. And this is the concern of Rand Paul, Justin Amash, and other uh, privacy advocates. So um, I think it's potentially a legitimate concern, but I also think Sanchez has a good argument for his interpretation. The bigger picture is this though, the bigger picture is that this stuff this, whether or not there's bulk metadata collection, whatever, this should never be left to the discretion of statute of legislatures. Legislatures should not be in charge of this. This should be reincorporated under the Fourth Amendment. And the only reason it's not is because of something that I've talked about a million times on this show, such that I sound like a broken record, but it's something called the third party doctrine. The third party doctrine says, once you share information with a third party, even as an innocent person engaging in a legitimate business transaction, say with Verizon, once you share that information with them, you no longer have what they call a reasonable expectation of privacy in that data. It's no longer covered by the fourth amendment. And so therefore you're at the mercy of legislators and the whim of the moment and vague language that can be manipulated by the FISA court as you have here in the USA Freedom Act. So in terms of any sort of enduring protection for privacy, I think we need to get rid of that third party doctrine. And I'm hoping that the Supreme Court will 
embrace the opportunity to do something to the third party doctrine when it has a chance to consider the cases. I'm not sure if that Clapper case out of the Second Circuit is well poised to have that issue even addressed. I'm hoping that the Fourth Circuit case is going to go up and have a little bit more meat to it in terms of what it offers as an opportunity for the court. So, um, so long story short, does the USA Freedom Act actually protect freedom? I think not overall. I tend to agree with the Amash Rand Paul. Not that it's completely toothless, though. Um, you know, there is there are some checks here, but also I think that it is really a step back to have you know, enacted into law this bulk metadata collection where none existed before. And I do wonder what is going to happen when some of these private companies decide, hey, maybe we don't want to collect and retain all this stuff. And then what? Then what's going to happen? You know, McConnell tried to get his language in there such that the companies would have to inform the government if they weren't going to retain it for 18 months. But he failed on that count. So I have a feeling that right now, the government is somewhat at the mercy of these companies. Of course, the companies are always at the mercy of our government these days, but it's not a complete, you know, set in stone, so to speak, relationship. Um, so Edward Snowden had a little, I, I almost want to call it a puff piece. I'm, I'm a little, of course, disappointed with it. In the New York Times today, Edward Snowden, the world says no to surveillance. And I guess that's true in terms of spirit, but he keeps talking as if some major progress has been made. And I'm not so clear that major progress has been made. Although I, I do accept this argument. And this is an argument that it's, it's not mine. And I'm trying to remember in where in my, prepare, uh, in my preparation for today I read it. But the argument was that you, in order to achieve the elimination of bulk metadata collection, we had to have two things. We had to have not only... The um, I think this is actually on the Just Security blog, and it was written by another author, not Julian Sanchez. Um, I think it's the most recent post there on USA Freedom Act. A, a woman, and I can't remember her name, uh, wrote this. So this is what she said, and I think it's true. She said, you had to have not only the expiration of the Patriot Act, but you also had to have the exposure of the program that Edward Snowden gave it so that it could expire. But then the sad thing, of course, is, is that while the Patriot Act provision that, you know, again, purported to authorize this collection program, while it expired, we have put in its place something that basically legalizes it. And that's really uh, a sad thing. But, um, you know, Snowden is out there touting a victory. And I do sort of wonder a little bit in my mind. Obviously, the American people are demanding more privacy. They're not getting it. They're asking for it. Maybe they're thinking they're getting it, but they're not getting it. Um, I'm wondering how much of Snowden's evaluations are based on the idea that he's trying to, you know, court and negotiate to come back to the United States. I'm not sure what his legal situation is and if he's trying to say, okay, you know, Government, I'm always, you know, I'm going to go out there and do some propaganda pieces that are basically going to make it look like you guys are doing what I've asked and that everything's peachy keen, fine and dandy. I get a little sense of that. 
Uh, there needs to be a lot more. But he also cheers on the private companies that have taken it upon themselves to provide us with more encryption tools and things like that apart from the government. So it's not 100%, you know, pro. But I just, I just feel like he's more optimistic about what has been achieved than he should be. You can go ahead and read that piece and, and decide for yourself as well. Um, let me go over here to the chat room because I have been doing monologue for a bit here and I want to see what you're doing. Uh, John Roberts says that Snowden is more optimistic than I. Yeah, and that's how I feel as well. Uh, Craig says, and I think you're probably right, Craig. He says the NSA will ignore the law, whatever it says or means. And perhaps that is indeed true. Again, I do believe that that statute can be interpreted in a way that will allow things that are tantamount to bulk metadata collection. <sighs> anyway, no, it is, it is sad. But let me tell you what got me very mad this week, and it is this. So imagine early this week we have the Patriot Act expired. There has not yet been the USA Freedom Act you know, passed and signed into law by Obama. We're in that weird limbo zone that I talked about last week where I was concerned that Obama would, in a fit of throwing a temper tantrum because he had lost his toys, so to speak, that he would just decide maybe not to do some forms of legitimate investigation, investigation techniques that he has. And by the way, Julian Sanchez, in the beginning of his piece, he completely contradicts what Obama said. You know, Obama was like, oh, the doom and gloom. If these tools expire, everything, you know, the sky is going to fall and et cetera. And, um, you know, Sanchez just talks about this as scaremongering. He says the scaremongering strategy that birthed all of this is is well past its sell-by date and starting to emit a noxious odor. And he talks about there were plenty of overlapping authorities that would allow these, you know, in, uh, intelligence agencies to obtain most of the same information anyway. So everything that Obama was doing was total scare tactics. But here I was, I was concerned that he would, just as, you know, he threw a temper tantrum when he didn't get his debt ceiling increase and he didn't allow the veterans to come and visit certain memorials in Washington, D.C. for events that they had planned and traveled thousands of miles for and et cetera. Remember when he did this? I thought, okay, maybe he's just going to, you know, hold back and not deploy certain resources to try to protect us from terrorist threats. It's precisely the time where Pamela Geller has helped to flush out a whole lot of these terrorists right here in the United States. He's like, eh, I think I just, you know, won't go after these guys, right? This is the thing that concerns me. So it's in the midst of this, and I have this concern in my mind, that I see this story that the AP broke at the beginning of this week, just as a coincidence, right? And Drudge, shame on him, top of his Drudge report on the left-hand side in the red letters that show that this is a real important story that you should look at and you should be very alarmed about. Here's the headline. FBI behind mysterious surveillance aircraft over U.S. cities. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do, right? Now, if the FBI is flying aircraft over U.S. cities and doing bulk metadata collection or bulk data collection of any kind, you know, when they collect bulk data, it doesn't have to just be metadata. It would be even worse if it was more than metadata, and I'm sure some of this goes on. So, you know, let me tell you at the outset, 
if the FBI is collecting bulk data with this stuff with no probable cause and no particular suspicion, of course I'm against it, right? But there are legitimate uses for aircraft surveillance over U.S. cities. I can imagine many of them. And in fact, as far as this AP story goes, the FBI has said the flights that they were putting out there are used for, quote, specific ongoing investigations. Okay. Now, if it's a specific ongoing investigation, you have some sort of reasonable level of cause, you have true particularized suspicion that's based on the actual conduct of the people being observed, right? This is good, right? Real investigation. I don't care if you use aircraft or technology or whatever, but if you're doing actual real investigation based on cause and particularized suspicion, you know, and we could talk about varying level of cause for certain circumstances. And if you're going to relax the level of cause, should you declare a proper war? These are all things we can talk about, right? But we're talking about specific ongoing investigations. As far as I know, it's not bulk data collection. As far as I know, this is legitimate. What does the AP do exactly in the week? where Patriot Act is gone and you know certain tools are gone, they're going to go ahead and expose what might be a perfectly legitimate investigative tool. And moreover, the, you know, the AP not only talks about this, you know, their little expose, they decide that they're going to reveal the names of the companies, they're like fictitious business names, that our government was using to register these aircraft all over the country. They'll just go ahead and reveal those, basically expose it, make this program not able to operate precisely on the week when Patriot Act expires and we don't know whether the Freedom Act is going to pass and the blah, blah, blah. And then Drudge, he does his part with his whole sensationalist crap and he puts it in the top left and the red and everything else. So, you know, do these people understand that there's a difference between illegitimate bulk data collection by government and potentially, uh, and as far as I can tell, they are legitimate investigative techniques precisely when we need them because we are flushing out these guys. These guys need to be followed. Perhaps they're being surveilled by aircraft. Hmm. Imagine that. I was very, very upset and I'm, I'm hoping I'm not the only one. Um, people here in the chat room, I guess they're not as upset as I am, but I was, I was very upset about this, very disappointed in AP and Drudge. They need to draw a clear distinction, bulk data collection bad, certain types of government investigation, perfectly fine and good. And there are ways to preserve the good type and get rid of the bad type. Um, maybe some people don't believe that, some liberals, some libertarians, but I think there definitely is a way to do that. Um, we've got a couple of people on the line. If you do want to actually chime in by phone, you need to hit the one button and let me know. Uh, if you're having trouble with the one button, sometimes people do have trouble with that, maybe on their certain types of cell phones and stuff. You can tell me here in the chat room over at Blog Talk Radio that you're waiting to, to talk as well. Uh, there's a few other stories that I wanted to talk about this week, and we'll just kind of uh, go through them a bit quickly before we're done here. Um, one, just to give you a bit of heads up of how bad things are around the world in terms of dealing with the jihadist threat. If you remember, there is the girl Malala 
Yousafzai, I can't pronounce her last name, I'm sorry, but there was an assassination attempt made on her life, the Pakistani schoolgirl who dared to say that, you know, girls should be educated. Um, there were apparently 10 men who were jailed for the attempted assassination of this girl, Malala. And it turns out that eight of them were secretly acquitted. Secretly acquitted. Only two of the men actually uh, who stood trial were acquick, uh, acquitted. So this idea that justice is going to be brought to those people who commit jihadist attacks, uh, whether here or abroad, it's, it's just not happening. Um, something else that happened this week that I think people should be concerned about is there was a Muslim woman and she sued Abercrombie and Fitch um, for not giving her a job because she wanted to wear her headscarf, et cetera, and didn't have the proper look for salespeople in their store. I don't know if you know about Abercrombie and Fitch, but they have a very particular kind of very sexy look that they like to have their salespeople embody. And this woman coming there, I guess, in a Muslim headscarf, et cetera. Why does she want to work there, by the way, if this store basically oozes sex? Um, you know, you see all those ads and there's like these shirtless guys and everything. This is, I think, probably pretty offensive to anyone who's pretty much a devout Muslim. But in any event, she said she was denied a job because she wore a hijab. And she sued. And our Supreme Court actually... Uh, granted her a victory. So now they see this as an element of anti-religious discrimination. And, you know, the Washington Post, the particular columns that they have over here at the Washington Post, is cheering this on as a victory for all religious people. Um, you know, we can't treat religious people as second-class citizens, etc., uh, they say what is at stake here is not just a single employer that is discriminated against one individual. Um, you know, you you cannot discriminate against religion. They say a large majority of Americans who are affected by these discriminatory discriminatory policies belong to minority faith communities, and the su Supreme Court's decision directly impacts how we think about equal opportunity and religious freedom. It says Americans now are one step closer to not having to choose between their faith and their work, end quote. So, it, you know, it's really interesting because in this country, if you are of a certain faith such that you decide you shouldn't have to be able, you know, shouldn't have to, for instance, bake a cake for a gay wedding, you can be forced to do that contrary to your religion. But if there's an employer who says, in order to have a job with us, you're not able to wear a hijab and practice your religion, no, the employer loses. So what is it really? It's the business person loses. I mean, that's really the rule here. The business person, the person who has the ability to create wealth and give people jobs, that person is going to get punished. He has no right to his point of view or opinion, whether or not he's on the side of religion or against religion, the business person loses. That is the message that we get from the Supreme Court this week, and I think it's just pathetic. <sighs> of course you have a right to practice your religion, 
but you do not have a right to use your religion as some sort of a club to make somebody else do something against their will. Abercrombie, I mean, hell, I don't know if they would have hired me. They would say, okay, you don't have our look. They are very particular about the look for their people. And the fact that you wear a scarf, you want to wear a scarf for your religion, that is your problem. It's not their point. You know, it's a, Abercrombie is not itself a house of worship designed for you. It is a store that wants to sell clothes with a certain look to a certain crowd and, and make money. And they should be free to do that and choose whomever they want for whatever reason they want. And if you don't like it, you can go ahead and boycott it and you can take ads out and you can say, oh, how horrible they are that they've got this unified look and they won't allow diversity. Go ahead. Try your ideas out in the so-called court of public opinion. Um, Stuart Hayashi, he is a oftentimes regular listener to the show. He sent me this story from Yahoo Finance and it says this, the, he the headline, it's great that unemployed people in Europe are pretending they have real jobs. Now listen to this. It says across Europe, hundreds of fake companies have been set up. They function just like a normal corporation would. Employees send out invoices, they pay bills, they even apply for loans, but they don't actually produce anything. It says the sham corporations exist for the benefit of the jobless across Europe, desperate to be retrained and put to work. So it's an elaborate training network that effectively operates as a parallel economic universe. So it doesn't produce anything. Maybe trains them, but they say it also, quotes, give, it gives purpose to the unemployed. It gives you a sense of self, says the article, even though you're not actually producing anything. So this is Europe, the same place that is currently bringing you negative bond rates, negative interest rates on your money. Oh. Craig says he thought they sold fishing poles. I think he's going back to the Abercrombie. You'll have to let me know if I'm... I, Got the wrong comment there. Uh, yeah, but none of, none of these uh, companies in Europe are actually producing anything. All they're doing is supposedly making people feel better about what they do. Uh, in the good news camp, I've got two stories here. One is that they have developed a blood test that would cost approximately $25 that could by itself detect every virus that has ever infected you. And a couple of my friends have, have shared this. One is Rob Abiera and uh, also Brian Yoder shared this story. But um, this is from gizmodo.com. And here it goes. It says, every time a virus gets you sick, your immune system keeps a record. This essentially becomes a kill list that lets your body recognize and readily dispatch of any virus that tries to invade again. Now there's a $25 blood test that prints this out and it's an easy and cheap way to find out any virus that has ever made you sick. Um, so the immune system responds to these viral infections, makes antibodies, and then this test is able to encounter those. Um, it says existing tests for viruses, in fact, already look for these antibodies. But what makes this new test different is that it can look for antibodies matching virtually every virus known to infect humans at one time. So it's a thousand strains from 206 species. Um, so they're able to do this. Now, um, 
if they're able to do this, then the question is, what is it going to do? You can look for common factors in different mysterious illnesses, such as chronic fatigue syndrome is what they're saying. So what you do, I guess, if you do this, you'd say, okay, people with certain symptoms, let's give them this test. And then we find out that they've had certain illnesses in the past, certain viruses that have attacked them. And then maybe you could determine which of the viruses are behind something like chronic fatigue syndrome. So this is the syndrome. This is the upshot, the money of it. Um, the final piece of bad, uh, bad news, no good news, is to see a strong defender of freedom of expression. Although I wish, I, I, I do wish Pat Condell in this video that's at the end of the program notes. Again, go to my blog, don'tletitgo.com for links to all the stories we talked about today. In particular, do read Julian Sanchez's uh, analysis of USA Freedom Act, because I think you'll learn more. I gave you kind of the cliff notes version here, the essence of it, but if you're interested, check it out. Um, but there's this very sobering video by Pat Condell, Goodbye to the First Amendment. And, you know, he talks about here in the United States, we are seen as the last outpost of freedom of speech around the world. You know, he talks about the fact there in England, they just don't even have it anymore. And, you know, why can't, you know, and he's being sarcastic of, you know, America, why should you be the last holdout? You should just join along with the rest of us and, you know, stop offending people. And, you know, don't you realize that freedom of expression is actually limited by offense and all these types of things. Um, but it's, um, it, it's, it's very sobering. You don't get, sometimes when you watch his videos, you get a little bit of a laugh, but he is a very strong voice. And, free, and, and what I liked seeing is, yes, he lives very, very pro-American message. And he's basically calling out on us. He's saying, he's saying like Jonathan said, uh, you know, earlier in the foot, John, who called up, um, he said, you know, protect free speech. It is worth going to these events. It's worth standing up for it. And if our media is not doing it, if our government isn't doing it, it's up to us, the American people, to stand up for freedom of expression. Um, so we, we do need to. I'll keep talking to you here on Don't Let It Go Unheard. I do thank you for joining me here this evening. Those people who have joined me live in the chat room uh, called in. Thanks to John and thanks to uh, Bosch for calling in today. And to those of you who are listening live as well, thank you for tuning in and, and sharing part of your week with me. If you're enjoying the show, if you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. Um, if you want to come and support the show, go over to my blog at don'tletitgo.com and there's links where you can do so as well. Uh, continue the discussion over there too. Leave me some comments and we can talk more about tonight. Let me know what you think of the USA Freedom Act, my interpretation of it, and the prospects for the future of free speech. So everyone, have a good night. And I will talk to you a week from now. Have a great weekend. Take care. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.